You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. While our men are finishing up the offering, will you, uh, will you pray with me? Father, we come before you again. Lord, we thank you again for a glorious day to come and worship you, to sing your praises, to exalt Christ, the name above all names. Lord, I pray now as we begin to open up your word, God, that you would prepare us to hear what you'd have for us this morning. God, that the gospel would be made clear, and Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We are halfway through the book of Galatians that we started in May. We're halfway there. You've hung on this long. We're going to keep going, but Galatians chapter 4. Before I begin, I've said this before, that November 6th, 2019 is probably one of the best days of my life. Second to my salvation and the day that I got married, I'm going to put my daughter on the spot here, who's seven. Why is November 6, 2019 so important to me? You going to say it? She's a little shy. On November 6, 2019, 2000, November 6th, what was that? Your adoption, that's right. We had the immense joy on that day of adopting our sweet girl. If you haven't figured out by now, I love this girl with all my heart. When she was adopted, she legally became a part of our family. Now, I couldn't have kept her if that legal declaration never happened. But more than a legal status change, what adoption gave my daughter is a mother and father who love her immensely. And I would literally lay my life down for her. Now, I love adoption for many reasons. Of course, it gave me a forever child who I love with all of my heart. But even more so, physical adoption is a glorious picture of the gospel. That we have been adopted as sons of God by faith. And this is what Paul is teaching in this passage in Galatians chapter 4. Up to this point, he's been speaking on the doctrine of justification, which is a legal declaration that we are positionally declared righteous before God because Jesus was cursed for us. But in today's text, we get an even more glorious truth of the gospel that Jesus died so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters of God. I'm going to read the passage here, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 7. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, 
You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is a glorious text, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I seem to say that about every time I preach something, that it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I guess I just love the Bible. But as we begin in this text, I want us to see that number one, God sent the law to prepare us to become sons. In the previous chapter, at the end of the chapter, verse 29, it says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. What a glorious truth this is, that if we belong to Christ, we have an inheritance that awaits us. But verse chapter 4, verse 1 gets into that, and it says, As long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is in their guardians and managers until the date set by the father. God had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that through him all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 22:18 makes it even more clear that it would be through Abraham's seed, that is Jesus, that all the nations would be blessed. God had made that promise, Abraham trusted in that promise, but it wasn't until more than 2,000 years later that Jesus would be born, die, and raised from the dead. That promise made to Abraham called for confident trust and was fulfilled long after he died, two millennia later. We saw last week that the law served as kind of a prison guard, keeping us imprisoned and longing for Jesus to free us. The law also served as a a pedagogue or a guardian, taking care of us until Jesus makes us sons. And in this text, we have this example as kind of of a trust fund. A firstborn child would receive an inheritance from their father, but if he was a minor, it was kind of put into a trust. It was it was his. He he owned it. He did not have it, possession of it yet. The inheritance was sure and certain, but it was not already in the child's possession. It says that until that inheritance is in his possession, he is under guardians and managers. That's the law. So we saw that the law is our guardian until Christ came. Honestly, when I think of this kind of mentality, this, hey, this is yours, but not yet. What, what comes into my mind is the movie Lion King. Seen that movie before? In the movie, Mufasa takes Simba to the highest peak. And I know all, some of our kids do if they were in Camp Imagination. But Mufasa takes Simba to a high peak and he says, Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. That's my Mufasa voice, by the way. It's terrible. But... Uh, But a king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. Simba, you must remember who you are, the one true king. Simba one day would be king. But until then, he was under a guardian. Anybody know who his guardian was? The bird. Zazu, the dodo bird, when when Mufasa was off doing kingly duties, Zazu was responsible for Simba. Simba was the heir to the throne, but he was still a child. He still had to be treated as such. And much like Simba in the movie, Abraham and all his descendants after him lived in this tension of already but not yet. 
What I mean by that is that the promise of the seed had already been made. They were to trust in those promises that there was an inheritance that awaits them to those who believe, but he had not yet come and would not come for two millennia. They had to trust as they lived under the guardianship of the law until the date set by the Father, as it says here in verse 2, until the date set by the Father. There would come a time where these promises would be realized, where these promises would be fulfilled. Just as Zazu was Simba's guardian until one day Simba would inherit his father's kingdom, the law is our guardian until we inherit the kingdom of God. As we said last week, the law does not impart life. It cannot do so. It was never designed to do do so. It It was designed to reveal our sin and prepare us for Christ. It prepares us for the one who would come and give us life, give life to all who seek him. In this sense, our salvation is kind of like a trust fund. The inheritance is ours by faith. If our faith is in Jesus, the inheritance awaits us. But it is not ours yet. Much in the same way how a child heir has a claim to this inheritance. But it is in a trust until he is of age to receive it. One day we will receive the inheritance that has been promised to us. But now we must walk by faith and trust as we long for the day when our faith will be made sight. The law was given to prepare us to become sons of God. The second thing that we see here is that God sent his son that we might receive the position as sons. In verses 4 and 5, We see this, and we'll look at verse 4 at the beginning. It says here, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. First, the thing that we see here is that God sent his son at the right time. When the fullness of time came. Now first, it was the right time theologically. Everything that was going on in the Old Testament was leading up to this point. Ever since he had promised to Adam in the garden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then to Abraham that the seed, uh, through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God has been working out his plan of redemption. Unfolding it through the law and prophets along the way. Much like peeling back the layers of an onion. He'd been unfolding his plan, and and, and we get into Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin. We also get in Isaiah that that he would die, that he would be crushed for our sins. We also get in Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem. We get all these prophecies throughout the the law and the prophets concerning Jesus, and and God is through them uh, unfolding his plan to redeem the world in Christ. It was the right time theologically when Christ came, because everything Pointing to Jesus was, was ready for him to come. It was the right time religiously. The paganism of ancient Rome and the idolatry that pervaded the Roman Empire had taken the culture of Jesus' day to a new low. And a spiritual hunger dominated the overall culture. It was the right time culturally. The Greek language was common in that day and allowed for the spread of the gospel more easily. It was also the right time politically. 
The Romans had developed a system of roadways that would make taking the gospel to the far corners of the known world much easier. But it's not as if God was sitting up in heaven saying, well, you know, hey, things sure seem to be lining up. I think it would be a, be a good time to get Jesus on the field here. No. Christ came at the right time according to God's sovereignty. This was God's plan. When we look at the genealogies of Jesus, it's easy to see that God was working out his plan in human history to bring us to the exact moment when Jesus would come. This passage here in Galatians 4 is a great passage to preach at Christmas, and we might revisit this one in the near future. But Jesus came at the precise time that God had sovereignly ordained. Everything lined up because in his sovereign wisdom, he had lined it up. And Jesus did not accidentally fulfill over 300 prophecies of Scripture. This was God's plan. He was sent at the right time. And God sent his son to redeem us from the curse of the law. The first thing that we see is that Jesus was fully God. Where do we see this at? The fact that he was sent before he was born. That God sent him and sent him to be born. This alludes to John 1.1, that when the word was in the beginning with God, and he was with God in the beginning because he was God. Jesus is divine. He is fully God. He has all the attributes of the Father. He is, he is true God. He is fully God. He is not part God, part man. He is fully God, fully divine. And he was sent. The second thing we see is that Jesus was fully human. It says here that he was born of a woman. And we all know the Christmas story, at least I hope that you do, that he was born as a baby to the Virgin Mary. His birth evidences his humanity. He, he did not just appear as a human or, or, or look like a human or, or, or he, was he manifested as a human. No, he literally was a human. And it wasn't that he became part God and part man. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. But we see in his humanity, when we, we've been in Matthew in our Sunday school classes, and when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, he hadn't had anything to eat. What does it say about Jesus in that text? He got what? He got hungry. <laughs> Man, I, I go four hours without food, and I'm hungry. And Jesus was hungry. He was human. In Matthew 8, Jesus had had a full day of ministry, teaching and healing and serving people, and he was on the back of a boat in the middle of a storm. And what was he doing? Anybody, anybody know? He was asleep. Are you kidding me? There's a storm raging, and this guy's just conked out. Anybody ever had a nap like that? Yeah? We all have. We've all been exhausted. Jesus was human. He was sleeping. Hebrews 4.15 says, In his humanity, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, so that we might have a high priest who can sympathize with us. In his humanity, he was tempted in every way that we are. He sympathizes with us. The third thing we see is that Jesus was fully righteous. He was fully God. He was fully 
human and he was fully righteous. He was born of a woman. And then it says he was born under the law. I want you to know that Jesus, on Good Friday, Jesus did not parachute down from heaven to the cross. It'd be pretty cool to see, but he didn't do that. He was born. He was born of a woman and born under the law. As, as God, Jesus was above the law, but as one who would become a curse for us, he submitted himself to the law, and he kept it perfectly. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He kept all the feast. He was perfect in regards to the moral law. He even died according to the laws. That's what Galatians speaks about earlier when he was cursed for us. Because our, he took our sin upon him and bore them in his body on the tree. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And one of the things that is often left out of our gospel presentations is that it is his perfect life, his perfect obedience to the law... Uh, so that his perfect righteousness can be credited to, credited to us when we place our faith in him. Jesus didn't just die for us, but he lived for us. He lived a perfect life. So that when our sin is placed on him at the cross, all of his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is placed on us. So that when God looks down, at Jesus on the cross, he sees Jesus as he lived our life with all the sin, all the ugliness of our sin, so that he can look upon you and me by faith as if we lived his life. Perfect righteousness. Jesus redeems us by taking on human flesh, living in perfect obedience to the law and dying as a curse for us. And in so doing, he is able to redeem, to buy our freedom, paying the price of redemption with his own blood. And God redeemed us from the curse of the law, but praise be to God that God sent his son so that we could become adopted sons of God. As the text continues, it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love this. This whole book has been about justification, which is a legal declaration by God that he declares you righteous because of your faith. But imagine for a moment that God is there on his courtroom bench and he strikes the gavel declaring you righteous. Well, that's justification. But now imagine that he steps down from his bench, he walks down the little stairs, and he grabs you and he gives you a hug. He says, come home with me and be my son. And he adopts you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God doesn't just declare us righteous and move on like a judge with a million more court cases on his do docket. He justifies us and then he adopts us as sons. Jesus, the divine son, took our place under the law so that we might take his place as adopted sons of God. It is through Christ's work of redemption that we can also become adopted sons. In his book, Adopted for Life, Russell Moore notes how when he speaks on adoption, he asks, are you speaking on the doctrine of adoption or physical adoption? He writes that it's hard to talk about one and not talk about the other. He writes this, Adoption is, on the one hand, gospel. 
And this adoption tells us who we are as children of the Father. Adoption, as gospel tells us, about our identity, our inheritance, and our mission as sons of God. When my daughter was adopted, she gained a new name. Uh, I, I remember the day after we'd found out that we were going to get to adopt her, that we're sitting at the kitchen table, and I, I began to try to figure out, okay, how am I going to tell her that she's about to have a name change? And at first, it went by pretty poorly. But then I said, I said, sweetheart, you know how I, how I gave mama my last name because I, I love her. I said, I want to give you my name because I love you. Oh, her, her face lit up with joy. And that's what God does for us. He gives us a new name. He gives us a new identity. Just as my daughter has a new name and she has a place to belong, she has a room in my house. And when I pass away, she will inherit what's mine. I, I, when she gets older, she's going to hope I get rid of some of that beforehand. She has claim to it like no one else here. She is mine. I claim her as my own because she is, not, not just legally. She doesn't just share a legal status, but she receives my love. When she was adopted, she didn't just gain a mom and a dad. She gained an entire family. All of her foster siblings were, were and are her brothers, and she gained uncles and aunts and grandparents. She doesn't just receive a, a legal status change, but she receives all of our love, and the love of an, ex, an entire extended family. Church, when we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, our identity changes. We take on his name. We have a place to belong. He, he claims us as his own, and he pours out all of his love on us. And he gives us a family. But if I'm his by faith, and you're his by faith, that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have the love of one another. But I want you to know that your adoption by God was not an afterthought. He had determined to set his love on you before you were even born. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1.5. In love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on the beloved. Before the foundation of the world, God set his love on you. This was not based on the law. And if, if my salvation was based on my law keeping, I'm doomed. God would not love me because of law-keeping, because I have disobeyed it. Because I am lawless, I have sinned and have broken God's law numerous times. He certainly could not have set his love upon me after, after the law came. But before, our adoption as his son was part of his plan before we took our first breath. I want you to see here in the, in the text in Ephesians that this was motivated by his love. 
In love he did this. This was motivated by his kindness. This was according to the kind intention of his will. If you are saved today, if you are an adopted son or daughter today, it was because God loved you. And because of his kindness. It's not based on anything that you've done. He set this upon you before you were born. We see what, what motivated that. And how do we become adopted into his family? It says, we're predestined to adoption as sons through Christ. You become an adopted son of God through Jesus by believing in him, by trusting in what he did on the cross. And why does he do this? Ephesians 1.5, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God has adopted you into his family, not really for your own benefit, but his. He adopted you into his family so that you would worship him alone to the praise of the glory of his grace. When we realize that according to the kind intention of God's will that he adopted us, this should cause us to rejoice and praise him. Dear believer, you have been adopted as sons of God. Take joy in that. Rejoice in God's overwhelming love for you that he would make you his child and promise you an inheritance. Number three, God has sent his spirit so that we may receive the privileges of sonship. I've already shared that when a child is adopted, they take on a new position as a member of that family. And my daughter experiences the blessings of having me as a father, not because I loved her enough on November 6, 2019, but because of the love she receives from me every single day. One of the things my daughter often says at home continuously, sometimes it's even aggravating because she says it all the time, is you're my daddy. That fact gives her certain privileges that other children don't get from me. But the reality is, is often adopted children, especially when they're biological children in the home, struggle to find their belonging. They need constant reassurance that they belong, that they are loved just as much as biological children. The, the temporary nature of foster care can cause adopted children to struggle wondering, hey, am I, am I next to leave? In like manner, even though we've been adopted into God's family, the enemy comes along and tempts us. Does he, does he really love you? Does he really love you like his only begotten son? Yeah, and maybe the enemy tempts us to think that maybe God treats us more like the stepmother does Cinderella. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're, you're responsible. Yeah, this is, this is kind of my stepchild. This is my... Yeah, I guess, but I'm going to treat her differently than these. No. God doesn't treat us any differently. He treats us as sons. This is where God's spirit comes in. Verse 6 begins to unpack the, the privileges of being adopted as a son of God. He says, because you are sons. Because you're sons. Because your adoption as a reality. 
God has sent his spirit into our hearts so that we will know and be assured of the privileges and blessings of sonship. One thing I want us to see here is that we have a relationship with a God who loves us. He has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Up to this point, everything about salvation has been outside of us. The incarnation, redemption, even this legal aspect of adoption through justification is all outside of us. It's something done outside. It's Jesus coming to the cross. It's God taking on flesh. But now there's this internal aspect of when the spirit of his son is sent inside our hearts. Because we are legally sons of God, the spirit comes inside of us so that we may have the experience of sonship. Now notice that the Spirit of God is sent to those who are sons. The Spirit of God is internal evidence that we have indeed received sonship. It says that he cries out, the Spirit of God cries out, Abba, Father. Now I want you to notice in this particular text here that it's the Spirit in our hearts that cries out, Abba, Father. In Mark 14, 26, Jesus is in one of the most intense moments of his life. He had just shared a meal with his disciples. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying. Luke records that his sweat was like great drops of blood. It's actually a physical condition called hematidrosis when you're in such a a deep, intense, stressful situation that that would happen. But what was the stressful situation? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to be crushed for your sin and my sin. And he feels the weight of that before him. And he cries out, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. The weight of our sin was much heavier than the wooden beam that he carried on his flesh-torn back. In this moment, he cries out, Abba, Father. It was a loud and earnest cry. But as the text here says that the Spirit who sent into our hearts cries out, Abba, Father, it, it tells us that we have the same relationship with God as Jesus did. And just as Jesus cried out to God in a moment of inner distress and turmoil as he faced the cross, as adopted sons of God, we have such a relationship with God that we can cry out to him when we are struggling. We have access to him as our father. You know what my daughter does when she gets hurt or upset? You know who she cries out for? Daddy. I want my daddy. She knows that she can come to me for solace and comfort. In the same way, because of our adoption as sons of God, we can cry out to our Abba Father when we're hurting and struggling. And he is there because he loves us. It's the spirit that is crying out here. In Romans 8, 16, it says, The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 
The Spirit in crying out to God when we don't have the words to say testifies that we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. I want us to also see here that we have a relationship with God who has changed us. Verse 7, it says, Therefore, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. The Spirit of God comes into us and, 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 and testifies that our lives have been changed. At one point, prior to coming to Christ, Paul spoke of the, of the Galatians, that they were imprisoned to the law. We saw this last week, but we are no longer imprisoned to the law. We're no longer slaves, but we are sons. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. How do I know that God is my father and that I'm his adopted son? Not by working my way into his family. O obedience may prove that you're a servant, but it doesn't prove that you're a son. Our sonship is based entirely on the redemption accomplished by the Son of God. We haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You know, if we're trying to, find our, if we're trying to base our salvation upon the law... There's reason to fear. Man, we, 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 we break it every day, every week. And if we're, we're trying to base our salvation on external law keeping, we're going to be afraid. Man, man am, I, am, I, am I really a son and daughter of God? Am I, am I really saved because, man, I'm, I'm not obeying the law perfectly? We can't. He didn't give us a spirit of fear. But he gave us a spirit of adoption as sons. You know, my, my daughter doesn't have to worry if she'll be accepted or not. My, my daughter doesn't have to worry where she's going to sleep tonight. Her adoption is not based on her behavior. While we teach her basic morality and manners and good behavior, her status as our daughter is not based on any of those things. She doesn't need to have a spirit of fear wondering if we're going to keep her or cast her out. And in like manner, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And if our salvation is rooted in the gospel alone, salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, we don't have a spirit of fear. We're his sons and he loves us. we're no longer a slave but a son the number three we have an inheritance from God that awaits us it says you're no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God we shared last week that what we inherit is God himself he is enough how do we receive this inheritance? Romans 8, 17 says that if we are children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There is inheritance that awaits you, dear brothers and sisters. But it's not just going to be handed to you on a silver platter. Our road to that eternal inheritance as a child of God is a road marked with suffering. But the suffering that we face as Christians pales in comparison with the glorious inheritance that awaits us. 
As we close, when my daughter comes to me and often says, you're my daddy, she knows what she has gained via adoption. You and I have not just been declared righteous by God, but we've been adopted as his sons. We have gained a new identity, a place to belong, and a new family. I pray that the doctrine of adoption is a comfort to your soul, that you are a son and daughter of the Most High God, and that he loves you with a never-ending love. To the unbeliever here today, maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. Right now, you're a slave. You're a slave to whatever you think will bring you the greatest joy. You're a slave to what you think will satisfy. Maybe you're a slave to your own religious performance like the Judaizers. I invite you today to come to Christ by faith alone and experience not just the blessings of justification, but adoption as sons. When you do, you don't just gain a father, but you gain a family. And you gain brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're there to support you, to encourage you, to, to love on you as you live for Christ. Come to him today. To the believer that's here this morning, you've been adopted as a son or daughter of God. You have nothing to fear. He is never going to stop loving you. You did nothing to merit to this adoption and you can do nothing for it to be taken away from you. There's nothing to fear. He loves you with a never-ending love. And to the church, we're a family of adopted sons. In the 10 years that my wife and I did foster care, we've fostered folks, of, kids of every nationality, race, that, that you could imagine. I remember one time in Costco, my wife tells the story that we had literally, we had Caucasian, African-American, and Hispanic kiddos all at one time, and the family looked like a school bus. But she's in Costco getting all these dirty looks. Because they think she's been with all kinds of different people. But, that's, but that was our family. Well, I loved every single one of them. As a church, we may look different, we may act different, we may come from different backgrounds. But we have been united as a family because at the right time, God sent forth his son to redeem us. Let us therefore love one another and care for one another as adopted sons and daughters of God, as we wait for the inheritance that awaits us. Let's pray together.